back. It's episode four of The Build. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you for coming back. If this is your first time listening, thanks for listening. Uh, there's a YouTuber I watch. His name's Curtis Connor. He used to do uh, special greetings for those returning. I won't do that, but thanks for coming back. Um, things are going real well for these Canadians, huh? Um, especially Saturday night's game. I thought Saturday against Edmonton was one of the most satisfying endings to a very frustrating hockey game for a fan. Um, first of all, the broadcast crew for a Hockey Night Canada game was absurd. They just took Edmonton's home broadcast and they said, you're now the national broadcast for this game. And typically I'm not super against that, but like it was essentially Edmonton Oilers propaganda from start to finish. Um, was not a fan of that. Was hoping that we'd get Hunter Ryan Singh. Uh, he's typically the the Western guy um, for, you know, the 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 Hockey Night in Canada games. He was apparently working the Colorado. Um, was it Colorado Calgary? I think it was Colorado Calgary game. Um, outside of that, of course, the thing that I think most people are talking about from that game is the coach's challenge, just screwing over the Canadians <laughs> every which way it could. Um, the first one being goalie interference that the Canadians challenged. Um, they challenged an Edmonton Oilers goal um, where Zach Hyman's going to the net. He gets, he, Kale Clegg makes contact with him inside of the faceoff circle. Hyman doesn't, Hyman is not in control of his body. He's on one skate when that contact happens. And he goes into Montembeau. The, 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 the contact itself wasn't dangerous, but it absolutely impeded Montembeau's ability to play the puck. Um, the league determined that that contact between Kale Clegg and Zach Hyman is the reason why the contact between Zach Hyman and Sam Montembeau happened. Therefore, the goal counted. Um, the rule reads that, you know, essentially, if contact causes the attacking player to go into the goalie, that's where that goal can be allowed. The issue I have that I think most people have is deciding that that contact between Kale Clegg and Zach Hyman caused that to happen. Because what you're inviting is if I'm going to the net and I'm outside in the faceoff circle and I'm going real fast, if anybody bumps me, I can go into the goalie now. Um, so that was just, I, I believe the wrong call. And I think a lot of people believe that was the wrong call. The offside challenges are annoying because they're not the wrong call. They're correct. I, I think of the bureaucrats in Futurama when they say you are technically correct. That is the best kind of correct. That's what the referees look at, or at least the war room in Toronto, they look at when it comes to these offside rules. Both on Nick Suzuki's power play goal and Laurent Dauphin's shorthanded goal, they were offside. It is correct. It's just annoying that you know, the, the offside review gets such a vague interpretation of a rule. And on, on the offside review, I should say the goalie interference rule is very vague. And the offside review is very hyper-focused. And there's no room for any sort of disagreement. Because it's very easy to see the puck over the line or not. Um, video review is either painfully incorrect and mocked or painfully correct and equally mocked. It it's never created a I shouldn't say never I want to say three quarters of the time it creates a result that the fi that fans are not happy with even if it's right they're not happy with the way that 
that this is being utilized. Um, and my last thought on that is just make the officials and the war room meet with the media after the game. Explain these calls outside of the little blurb in the Situation Room blog. Um, which, if you don't know what that is, the NHL, every time there's a goal that's disputed or reviewed in any capacity, they, the Situation Room releases a small blog entry explaining what happened. But a lot of times that blog entry is the call on the ice stands, no goal, or the call on the ice is reversed goal. So it's very frustrating. But on top of all of that, the Canadians found a way to win. Um, the be- I think the best part, and showing the resiliency and and you know the resiliency of this new roster is when Nick Suzuki had his first goal taken back because of the offside challenge he just went ahead and scored the same goal on that power play like it, he didn't they didn't change the plan that game was only close because of video review and i i mentioned that to take a minute to laugh at Mike Smith he made a glove save on Ryan Paling at some point after being bailed out a few times on offside challenges and he made that save he made a glove save where then he hot dogged it where he like hit him in the glove and then he just like lifted his glove in the air and like looky what I found sort of thing and at the time that he did that he had an 842 save percentage in the game like the guy who should be hot dogging is the Oilers video coach the guy who's like initiating these challenges and you could see, at least I thought I could, you could see it on Ryan Paling's face when he left the ice. Like, what the hell is this guy doing? Like, <laughs> like he just seemed confused. The whole thing seemed weird. Um, so great win for the Canadians. To the, again, to those upset that the Canadians are somehow ruining the tank, they're not going to get any higher up in the standings than 30th. They are, I think, still six or seven points back of Buffalo. So... They have to be six or seven points better than Buffalo for the remainder of the season. I just don't see it happening. The tank, the the draft lottery result, or not result, the draft lottery, you know, uh, percentage is baked into the pie at this point. You shouldn't worry about it. Um, but also on Saturday, I wanted to. I I felt very seen by um the broadcast. Elliot Friedman in the second intermission in the the thirty two thoughts segment said that the Canadians are basically putting Shea Weber's long-term injury reserve cap hit in place so another team can use that cap credit. Um, you know, I was under the impression that a t- any team could acquire it and just immediately gain that credit. A Canadian, a have someone on Twitter, at MTLFanSackic, correctly pointed out to me that that's not how it works. If a team is already over the salary cap, th- they don't gain any benefit from acquiring a contract on long-term injury reserve. They have to be able to take the contract, fit the cap hit underneath their salary cap. Um, so it would be like, you know, it, it, he has seven point, I think it's 7.85, something like that to the cap. Seven, It's something like that. They have to have that space and then put him on long-term injury reserve. And then they can exceed the cap by that amount. So if a team is already at the cap, which most teams in this league are, it won't help them. Um, Vegas is the example I gave last week. It won't create any new cash for them this season. So at MTL fan Sackick, completely correct in that assessment. And I, I temper my expectations and, you know, reality around that new truth that I've learned. But one team 
currently really close to having enough space while also wanting to add at the deadline is also somebody that the Canadians are already talking to, allegedly, and already are pretty connected to in the New York Rangers. Um, we know that, that obviously, Jeff Gorton comes from New York. There's a lot of chatter around the Canadians being interested in some of their prospects, like um, Vitaly Kraftsoff or a Niels Lundqvist, something along those lines. Um, they might want to add a Ben Sherrod or an Arturi Lekkinen. The Rangers currently have $6.2 million in cap space. They would need to have about $7.8 million to acquire Weber under the salary cap. So let's say they need to, you know, to get there, they need to shed about $1.7 million of salary on top of that in order to fit that cap hit, which isn't an insignificant amount of money. But it's very funny how it's almost exactly one Ryan Reeves contract. He makes $1.75 million. And a team could take Ryan Reeves. I feel like that that's a player who you're not you're probably not gonna play in the playoffs, I don't think, because he doesn't he doesn't add a lot to the way the team is going to add offense. He's an intimidation factor. Um and another team might pay a lot of money for Ryan Reeves, who's under contract this season and next. Um that's just an idea. None of that was based in any sort of um rumor that I've heard, but um, I still think that this is something that gets done closer to the summer. I think it happens more so at the draft, um, where teams have more money. You can exceed the salary cap by 10%, so that's almost exactly Shea Weber's contract. You can exceed the cap by that amount, figure everything else out, and then use his his that cap credit. Um, so, and, and again, that, that also aligns with the Canadians' idea that they want to name a new captain this summer. It seems like that would be a pretty nice way to move the old captain out. We're no longer, you know, we, we're not we're not unnaming him captain. He's just no longer on this team. And then you can put the C on Nick Suzuki's chest like I think they're going to do. But that's a later discussion for maybe two weeks from now at the trade deadline or potentially um, into the summer, into like, you know, draft season and, and free agency season. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about coaching. I teased this one. This I had three main episode ideas for when I started. I took that schedule off last week in order to um, just talk about some other things. Um, but one of the ideas that I had from the beginning was I wanted to talk about coaching. At the time, Dom Ducharme um, was not fired yet. So um, we are now into the the new coaching regime of, of Martin Saint-Louis. So I wanted to take a, look, a little bit of a look at what Dom Ducharme wanted to do with the Canadians, what he ended up doing, um, where where sort of did things go wrong for him, um, and then take a look at how Martin Saint-Louis is different, um, what he tries to accomplish with, with coaching his guys, while also seeing, like, you know, can, can this be sustained long-term? That one, obviously, I'm not going to have an answer for because we'll need to see it, but just kind of guessing at what this team how this team is going to look to evolve under Martin Saint-Louis. So first, we need to look back at Dom Ducharme. Uh, he was hired as an assistant coach in 2018 out of the QMJHL. He was also the head coach of the uh, World Junior uh, Canada. Um, his role is tough to pin down, especially at the beginning. Um, Arpin Basu wrote when he was then... Um, I think when he was high, when he was made into the interim head coach, um, 
Arvin Basu wrote, and this is a quote from him, as an assistant coach under Julien, uh, Dom Ducharme did a little bit of everything. He had input on the power play, the penalty kill, in-game adjustments, but he was primarily in charge of scouting the opposition. His interactions with the players, therefore, were very personal. Um, from that, I, I gather that he wasn't, that he was truly an assistant coach and truly the head coach in waiting. You know, it was very clear that he was going to be the next guy in. Um, and ultimately that isn't what ended up happening. Um, and it, the part of that, that I find interesting is that he was in charge of scouting the opposition because David St. Louis, um, then writing for Habs Eyes on the Prize, he now writes for Elite Prospects. He wrote about Dom Ducharme as a tactician in the QMJHL. Um, and he spoke, he wrote a little bit about a playoff series when, when Ducharme was coaching Drummondville in the 2017-18 playoffs. Uh, he was coaching against Cape Breton. Um, Dom Ducharme was essentially defined by making a matchup. Uh, and this is a quote from David St. Louis' article. Uh, matching a checking line against the top offensive weapons of another team and trying to use your own best players against weaker opposition is nothing unheard of, but Dom Ducharme was a level above that. He stuck to his plan fiercely through the series and forced his mat forced his players on and off the ice to constantly get the matchup he had in mind, even if it meant not having consistent lines or making adjustments on the fly. Some of that you know, very clearly carried over to his time in Montreal. He was very matchup driven. Um, you know, he wanted his guys out there against the guys that he thought they could play best against. Um, the pros of that were you get to glue Philip Deneau on the opposing team's best players all night, and he's going to drive them nuts, and they're not going to do very well. You know, it, and we saw it. We saw it against Toronto, where he was glued to. Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, and they were, you know, I don't want to say ineffective, but they didn't score any points. Um, I think they had one assist between the two of them, or one goal between the two of them. Um, so it can work in that aspect if you have a player whose role is very matchup driven. The cons of that, you get his three-on-three -three overtime decisions, which I know three-on-three -three overtime is not particularly the highest form of hockey. But you still need to win those games to get points. Um, and sending out Phil Deneau and Paul Byron and and Shea Weber to win the old, the, the opening faceoff and then get another matchup out there, it rarely worked. And it was frustrating watching him try the same things over and over again. And then only towards the end was he really starting to get asked about it in you know his pressers afterwards. And he never really had a good answer, you know. I, I was always kind of frustrated with his his inability to try something new. He was very much sold on his plan, which is a sign of confidence in a coach. He believes in, in what he believes in. You're not going to change his mind on that. Um, but that kind of feeds, that kind of runs contrary to what David St. Louis says about him from the QMJHL. That concept of him making adjustments did not carry over to his time in Montreal. I think that was one of his biggest criticisms was that he refused to make massive changes or anything really sizable. He had one card in his in his arsenal, and it was to to move a scorer out of the top six and bring up a grinder into the top six. Um, you know, I think you know who I'm talking about going down in the lineup, but um, you know, th th and that was just to 
the roster. He never really made any changes to the way the team played. Um, in that playoff, you know, towards the end of the season when he was hired and then into that playoff run, he didn't have a lot of time in practice. So he didn't have a lot of time to figure out whether or not he, you know, he didn't have a lot of time to, to teach a new structure. So he just didn't. He made it very simple. Um, you know, the ideas that he wanted to work on were puck support. It's one of the things that I think will take away from his his tenure in Montreal is he wanted the guy to have the guy that has the puck on the Canadians. He wants to have, you know, at least one other guy nearby him, maybe two, to try to create odd man situations all around the ice, two on ones everywhere on the ice. Um, but that inability to adapt, um, it didn't really hurt him in the playoffs because it was working. Um, at least, you know, after the Toronto series, towards the end of the Toronto series, it started to really kick in. Um, and, and you know, matchups are a huge part of a successful playoff run. Phil Deneau, the Canadians don't go on that run without Phil Deneau. If he's not shutting down um, Matthews and Marner, and then in the next round, Blake Wheeler and Nikolai Ehlers, and then in the third round, Pacioretty, um, you know, they aren't Mark Stone. He was invisible that series. If Deneau is not doing that, they don't win those playoff series. So the matchups worked, um, but it struggled in a condensed regular season last year and this season when you're playing a bunch of different teams a week. And also this season, they don't have a true matchup center. Phil Deneau's gone. Um, I thought in November, uh, Eric Engels hit the nail on the head with an article after a 4-1 loss to Buffalo. The, the title kind of nailed it off, but there's important stuff in it. The title was, Ducharme must overhaul system Canadians have proven incapable of executing. I think that was very intentionally written that way. I don't know. It, Eric Engels might not have written the headline, but the headline fits because it doesn't say the system is bad. It, it says the system doesn't fit what the Canadians are able to do, which is the job of a coach, if the job, if the coach has a system that isn't working, it's just far easier to replace the coach and bring in a new system than it is to replace 21 guys on the roster. Um, so Ducharme, frustrated after that 4-1 loss to Buffalo, he says, quote, you're in the NHL, you should be able to make plays. They don't have to be plays that end up on the plays of the week, but just efficient, intelligent, well-executed plays. As soon as we get away from that, like I've said, there's no system to make up for that. Engels makes essentially the point that I'm making here. He says, quote, He's not wrong, but the coach does have to come up with a system the Canadians can execute efficiently over a 60-minute game and over a stretch of those games if they want to do what appears practically impossible and go on a run to turn their season around. Charm's right, he can't keep the Canadians from making poor choices that lead to giveaways, especially when they have time and space to make better plays. But even if it's well into the season, it's not too late uh, for him to adjust the way they play in their own end. Everything else flows from there. And then he adds a, a quote from Jonathan Drew, and when you spend 45 seconds on defense, you don't have much energy to attack. So it it's multi-pronged. The Canadians both didn't play very well, and the system that they had didn't allow for them to turn it around. They stunk in their own end under Dom Ducharme this season. And like Druin says, when you spend an entire shift in the defensive zone, when you finally get that puck back, 
you're getting it to center, dumping it in, and getting the next line. So you've retrieved the puck, and now the other team has it because you don't have any any energy left to do anything with it. Um, so I think, and this is something I've I've wanted to harp on for a while, and you know, Twitter, of course, is the place where nuance goes to die. More than one thing can be right. Dom Ducharme could be a bad coach. And the Canadians could be bad at playing hockey this year. Dom Ducharme could be a good coach. And the Canadians could be bad at playing hockey this year. It doesn't need to be so one-sided. Um, but that doesn't mean the coach can just throw his hands up and declare the team uncoachable. Which in that first quote from Dom Ducharme, he essentially did. He basically said, it doesn't matter what system I give them, they stink. I don't know how at the time we didn't we didn't give him enough flack for that. That's sort of like you remember that I've I've often you know thought of Dom Ducharme being the Max Pacioretty of Canadians coaches, where he might be a perfectly fine coach, but he just he just seems so woefully ill-equipped to be the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens. Like, Max Pacioretty is a fantastic hockey player, and he is also a terrible, terrible captain for this franchise. He could not handle this market. I think it's kind of the same thing. Dom Ducharme might be a really good coach. I don't think he can handle this market very well. So Ducharme just never adjusted. Like David St. Louis said, he was sold on his system in 2017-18 in the queue. It worked there. He was sold on it in the 2021 playoffs. It worked there. It did not work this season, and he did nothing on top of it to change the system. They played the same way every night. They got the same result. A lot of that is probably goaltending. I don't disagree with that. But you still have to find a way. Teams, Good teams find a way to do that. Good coaches find a way to get the most out of their team. I just don't think Dom Ducharme did that. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the system. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a, an idiot. I don't know a lot of this stuff. I, I'm trying my best to understand it. I've read a few articles, a lot of articles, actually, to try to figure out, you know, what an effective forecheck looks like, what good defense looks like, how you play defense, uh, the difference between man and zone. David St. Louis has us covered here. Um, He's a fantastic resource. Elite Prospects is very lucky to have him. He's a, he's an excellent, excellent writer. Um, talking about the forecheck, he, he wrote a little bit about the way that the Canadians forechecked under Dom Ducharme. Um, they had a less aggressive but more controlled forecheck. And this is a quote from David St. Louis himself. F1 or forward one pressures alone while forward two and three show more restraint. And the defensive pair for the Canadians sits back often in the neutral zone. Um what happens next after that is the two restrained forwards are cutting off passing lanes high in the offensive zone, and the defensemen are back to cut off longer passes or retrieve dump-ins. The defensemen aren't really activated on the forecheck. It's kind of rare if they are um, you know, overly aggressive on a forecheck. Um, when this is executed properly, you can frustrate the other team. When guys like Arturi Lekkanen and last season, Yola Mia, had some success under Ducharme, it's because they're really good forecheckers. They get in, they muck things up on the walls, they, they're able to retrieve pucks. Um, the D-zone covers is where the wheels kind of fell off for um, 
Dom Ducharme. And excuse me, I'm going to read a little bit here from David St. Louis, but I think it's important. Um, He says, quote, man-on-man defense and zone defense are confusing concepts as teams use two different styles of coverage depending on whether the puck is low or high in the zone. But the important thing to know is that under Julien, Montreal's defensemen would not follow their attacker to the top of the zone. If that player skated above the top of the circle, the defenseman would release him to the forward. Montreal's blue liners are built to defend the slot with their size, their strength, and their long reach. They can wall off that area quite effectively. The Julien system did did play to the strengths of the team's rear guard. And then he adds a note here, or was it the rear guard that was built for the coach's style, which I think is important. Um... But that style also created inevitable switches in coverage when the play moved high, switches that clever offensive teams like Toronto would exploit. Now the defensemen have to skate a bit more. They have to follow their man at the top of the zone and, pre- and put pressure up there. So there's a lot to unpack there. The main thing is that you should take away is that under Claude Julien, the Canadiens defensemen would not follow their attacker to the top of the zone. They would release that that attacker, that forward, to a forward who was defending up high. And by up high, I mean closer to the blue line. So let's say Austin Matthews is coming in, and he doesn't have the puck, but they're in D-zone coverage, and he skates up to Jeff Petrie, and Petrie is now engaged with him. Petri- and then Austin Matthews then turns and skates back up the wall towards the blue line. There's a moment there where Jeff Petrie has to decide, am I, am I playing this, am I playing my man, or am, am I defending the front of the net? What, there's, a, there, there's a moment that both the forward and the defenseman have to understand. There's a moment where that, that player is then released, where Austin Matthews is released from Jeff Petrie's coverage and is now being covered by Thomas Tatar or someone else. You can see how that could be confusing. And you can see how it can be a vulnerability for another team attacking. A smart team, like David St. Louis points out, like Toronto, they would notice when that lapse in coverage happened, and that's when they would get pucks to them. That's when they would move the puck to those guys. So it's something maybe that I'm going to start watching for more because, honestly, I don't know too much about this sort of thing. But as that puck, it, as those those forwards were released, that's when lapses in coverage were happening. He also points out that, you know, the team that Julian had a style that complemented the Canadians' defense. But I think it's a little, that might be, and as David points out very clearly, like it, it might be a little bit of the, the tail wagging the dog there. I think the Canadian style was built around Mark Bergevin acquiring big, beefy Mark Bergevin defensemen. Um, then the new coach wants them to play a style that has them skate more. So, now they will follow their man to the top of the zone and apply pressure there. And that works against teams like Toronto because they're kind of preying on the Canadians to make a mistake, to to have a lapse in coverage. If there's no lapse in coverage, they don't they don't find that play. The players like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and John Tavares, those guys don't they don't get the open ice they need to make plays. So it's it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting strategy or just look at the way that, that hockey is played. Um, but also you have to take on top of that. The Canadians lost Phil Deneau. You know, when defensemen are no longer releasing to a higher, to a, to a forward up high, um, you're putting a lot of 
pressure on the defenseman already. And now if a player does get released, if a, if a forward does get released to a high forward on the Canadians, it's not going to be Phil Deneau stopping them. It might be, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, it might be a Mike Hoffman, which is bad news for the Canadians. Um, and I kind of talked about puck support already. The idea when the Canadians are trying to go the other way is to create as many two-on-ones as possible up and down the ice. In the playoffs, that worked. You can tell, you know, when the when the defenseman or when somebody in the defensive zone has possession of the puck, that the Canadians have a guy almost nearby as a release valve to have the, the puck just dropped off to him. So, you know, that we sort of understand a little bit better. It's not a perfect picture or a complete picture of Dom Ducharme as a coach, but you know, I don't think he's a bad coach. Um, I think he has a system that works when he has the parts he needs and when they all buy into their their part, when they all buy into their role. There was there was big buy-in on the Canadians last year when that coaching change happened. Not immediately, because they had to figure out what he wanted to do, and certainly not at the beginning of this season. It seemed like guys were just just had no idea how to execute whatever strategy he had going in the defensive zone. Um, but I, I do think he's going to get another shot somewhere. Um, I just think that the system he wanted to use was no longer effective with the Canadians in the current state that they were in. And he just never adapted. Um, I'm hoping that he learns that lesson because he seems like a very nice guy. I feel like, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my time on this podcast trashing him just because the new coach is better. I feel like he's going to, he's going to bounce back and he'll be, You'll see him behind an NHL bench eventually. So that kind of gives us a natural place to move to the next coach, to Martin St. Louis. But first, I wanted to have a little, you know, I had I had this idea about system versus structure. It was a question that um, Martin St. Louis was asked early, I think it was during his introductory press conference, where... Um, you know, they asked him, do you believe in systems? You know, do you have a system for coaching? And he kind of balked at the word system. And the word he likes to use more is structure, where players can, they're told how to play, but not exactly how to play. Um, you know, the word reads is something that we're getting a lot, where we're watching players make reads on plays. They're looking at the play develop in front of them, and they're making a read. And hopefully, you make enough correct reads in a row, and it ends up with you guys winning a hockey game. Um, but I wanted to kind of set an analogy for that that I think I'll use over you know, the course of this coaching style, of this this new coaching uh, administration. Um, it's a it's it, it's a Lego analogy. Sorry if this is beneath you. Um, it's fitting for the show. The, the logo for our show is Legos, so I should say is Lego. The plural of Lego is Lego. I don't know if you knew that. Um, a YouTube creator I like named Nakey Jakey who makes uh, video game videos and kind of essay type videos breaking down things in video games that he likes, doesn't like, need to be fixed. Um, he used this Lego analogy for how open world games like a Red Dead Redemption or a Grand Theft Auto, how they design their missions to fit within an open world while trying to, you know, give the game structure, but also give the that give the player some freedom of choice. And I thought that was kind of fitting for the way that Martin St. Louis describes, um, describes coaching. 
And the, the Lego analogy goes a little something like this. So think about the ways that you play with Lego. There's there's two main ways that you can you can enjoy Lego, at least in this analogy. I'm sure there's others. But you can buy a Lego set, you know, those boxes that you'll get off the shelf in Target for way too much money. And inside of those boxes, you'll find all of the Lego you need to build one spaceship and an instruction booklet. Oof, sorry. <laughs> And an instruction booklet that tells you exactly how you will build the kit. Um, you don't deviate from the set. You don't deviate from the instructions. You will always end up with the same spaceship. If I build one set and you build one set, our set, our spaceships will look the same. Or you can play with a bin full of random Legos and try to build a spaceship out of whatever parts you find. Can I trust that if I ask you to make me a spaceship, will you be able to find the parts in there that build that spaceship? It gives the Lego enjoyer the freedom to solve the spaceship problem in creative ways. And no two spaceships are going to look exactly the same. You know, they might, the parts might be different colors. They might be different shapes and sizes. But the goal at the end is the same. We each designed a spaceship. This is the way that I'm internalizing system versus structure. The system is the set with the booklet that tells you exactly how to do it. You're not really asked to be creative. You're kind of, in, in fact, with a Lego set, you're kind of told not to be because it's those things are a lot of money and it's sort of a waste of money if you take a spaceship kit and you use half the parts to build a, a little toy dog or something. Um, that said, you know, if, if that's the way that you want to enjoy it, that's a way to enjoy it. Just in, in the same in hockey, if that's how you want to build a hockey team, you can do that. There are teams that are very system-oriented and frustrating to play against. I think of the Calgary Flames. The way that Sutter has that team playing is very system-oriented. Um, and they're very successful. And they, acquire, they, they can acquire players that fit into that system. That said, every deviation from that book feels like a failure. You know, you if you've ever built a Lego set before, you get to page 48 and you realize that you missed a piece on page 12 and you have to take apart the entire thing and put it back together correctly. Um, you know, every time that someone misses a play in, in, hockey, in a system in hockey... It's an indictment on the on the player first for not understanding the system, but then a, an indictment on the system itself. Two failures occur. On the other hand, structure is telling someone, I want you to build a spaceship. Here are your materials. Go figure it out. It's it's a hockey it's it's a hockey play developing in front of you and you picking apart exactly what you think things are what you what you think the players in front of you are gonna do. Um you know, it's looking at a bin full of Legos and picking them apart and saying, I can build a spaceship out of this, 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 and this. They might not get a perfect spaceship on their first try, but, you know, a coach can help them figure out the best way to build that. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's the way that I'm kind of internalizing this system versus structure uh, discussion that I think is going to kind of dominate at least the next year as we understand what Martin St. Louis is trying to do. Because I don't know if you know this, but we have a head coach who has never been a professional head coach before. 
He was coaching the Mid Fairfield Rangers in Connecticut. Uh, he was coaching their Bantam team, which is 13 and 14 year olds. Um, when Kent Hughes called him, that's like, I mean, my dad is a coach here in Connecticut. I think he coaches like nine year olds. It would be like if they hired him. Um, when Kent Hughes was hired, he talked about finding a modern NHL coach, which should have immediately gave us pause that, you know, Dom Ducharme was ever going to be a Montreal Canadian past this season. Um, but he named Rod Brindamore as an example, and I think that that's a pretty good fit for who Martin St. Louis is. He's a player's coach. He's going to empower the player to make decisions. Um, the only difference is that Rod Brindamore had assistant coaching experience. And, you know, I feel like we were justified in, in being a little worried about that. Um, we've already seen quite a few things from St. Louis Canadians over the last little while. It hasn't, he has not been in Montreal long. Um, but there's an article in The Athletic from Arpin Basu and Marc Antoine Gaudin about, you know, it was the 10 chapters to Martin St. Louis' coaching style. I'm not going to give you all 10. You should go. I'm going to link it in the description. You should go read it. It's it's really informative. It was really interesting stuff. Um, but the things I want to focus on, I want to focus on the aspects of Martin St. Louis' coaching style that I just talked about in respect to Dom Ducharme. The first being the forecheck. Um, St. Louis has talked about wanting to play on top of the opposition. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Ducharme's forecheck was a little more laid back. He wanted restraint from forwards two and three. Um, that's what David St. Louis pointed out. Martin St. Louis, um, he wants to take away the opponent's ability to make a smart play by giving them no time and no passing options. And he wants a Canadian sweater to be on top of that guy. Um, and this is a quote from St. Louis on his forecheck. There's five of the other team on the ice. There's five of us. On the forecheck, probably the easiest job is to be forward one because you're like a dog on a bone. That's, and this is me talking, forward one is the guy on the puck carrier. You're attacking the puck carrier. Back to St. Louis. To me, forward two has got to be on top of the, the next most likely play, which is when, which in this league is probably a D to D pass. So you've got to crowd that space. So imagine you've got a forward forward one in checking, forechecking deep in the offensive zone. The forward two, who under Ducharme's system showed a little bit more restraint and was probably back by the blue line, they're now in between the hash marks, cutting off that D to D pass. Back to St. Louis. Now forward three, you have to be on top of something or on your way to being on top of something. So the way the read happens for me is in, is in sequence. Forward one, that's easy. You're just attacking the puck. Forward two reads based on what forward one does. So forward two is the one that's in the, in the hash marks blocking the D to D pass. So, you know, if they're forcing them out to the left side, they're going to position themselves in a way where they're cutting off the pass to the other defender. Uh, forward three usually reads based on what forward two does, but a little bit of what forward one does. That seems to me to be the hardest part of that four check is to be forward three, because you're now making reads based on what two players are doing. That's probably going to be reserved for the more veteran players on this team, or maybe the more, the ones with higher hockey IQ, which is a lot of what St. Louis talks about is just having a high hockey IQ. So back to St. Louis. Now four and five are your defenders. So they can't be worried about where the puck is. They've got to know where the puck is, but also process where the other guys are. Can I crowd that space? 
Because at the end of the day, if you keep crowding people, they kind of have to give you the puck back because they have no room to make a play. I'm I'm infatuated with the way he sees the forecheck. That is a beautiful explanation from Marty St. Louis on how he wants his team to play. It's simple enough that I understand it, but it seems effective enough where even though it is simple and you might see it coming, if you've got three bodies on top of the, the next three passing opportunities to come out of the zone, you're not going to break out. So to me, the only real structure is forward one, is the guy who's, who was told very specifically, you're going in there to attack the first guy with the puck. F2 and F3 are reads. Those guys are making reads based off of what forward one does and how forward one is able to force that defenseman to move the puck. Like I said earlier, it's also centered around the concept of hockey IQ. The better those reads are from forward two and forward three, the more effective the forecheck will be. So it is a system in the sense that you need all three of these guys to buy in, but it's very much based not on I'm going to stand here. It's I'm going to be where the puck is going. Um, so just I'm 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 <laughs> I'm I'm infatuated with the way that Marty St. Louis sees the forechecking aspect of this. And then to talk a little bit more about the D zone improvements, from what I gather, the big takeaway in the defensive zone coverage is that the kingmaker of a good or bad defense is learning when to release your guy. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Man-to-man probably has fewer releases than zone, I would imagine, but that's just a slightly educated guess on my part. Under Dom Ducharme, issues were created around confusion on releases. Same thing under Julian. It was difficult for them to figure out when they're supposed to release. When they're supposed to release, they're attacking forward. Um, and, a, you know, a guy like Deneau probably masks a lot of those problems because if a player is released, he might be able to kind of flex in and fix that. And I know he's not on the ice all the time, but he's playing 20 minutes a night. He's on the ice a whole lot. Um for now, it seems, you know, and this is more from that Arpin Basu and, and Mark Antoine Godin article, St. Louis, for the time being, seems okay with defensemen staying on their check for now. Um, Petrie says, you know, I think it was a little bit more clear with what we're doing now. I think everybody has a responsibility and there's less of the switching off guys and going back and reattacking. It's a little bit more clear that you're on your guy, that's your guy, and make sure he's not beating you to the net. And if he has the puck, then your job is to keep him to the outside and eliminate him. I think that clearly, I think that clarity really helped in our D zone tonight. That was, I forget what, I think that, that was actually in a 5-2 loss to Washington, I think. Um, we'll see how long the Canadians stick with that concept. I'm concerned that the way that the old regime built that this roster, it's not built to do this for a long time. They don't have a lot of slick skating defensemen who can play man-to-man and who can afford to chase a guy around the rink just in the in the way of staying on their man. Um, although, the idea that they're trying to build their defense that way would be exciting because it would give a guy like a Norlinder, um, you know, more of a of an opportunity. We're going to need you to skate, um, you know. It, it's something that I've been arguing the Canadians have needed to do for a long time is mobilize their defense, not only in their own zone, but on the attack. Um, so we'll see how long they stick to that. It'll likely work in the short term with the roster that they have now. But 
in back-to-back games and later on this season when they're going to probably lose some guys at the trade deadline, it may be a little tougher to, to maintain that. So the verdict on St. Louis, I feel like it's impossible to be dissatisfied with what he's done so far. Um, he's been great. The The energy around the team is different. I was really nervous about him at first, just in general, but also staying long term. I'm still going to be nervous if his next contract is like five or six years long, but certainly less nervous having watched it play out. Um, yes, it's a small sample size, but it has not been a catastrophic failure, which is kind of what I was expecting off the hop. Um, his structure and the way that he coaches needs to elevate everyone, though, not just Cole Caulfield. We've seen, obviously, the returns on Cole Caulfield have been phenomenal. Same with Nick Suzuki. But it also is is lifting, you know, I think it's elevating everybody else's game. I mean, I know Brett Kulak is good. Under St. Louis, Brett Kulak has been next level good. I've really enjoyed him. I really hope they find a way to extend him before the trade deadline um, and keep him around. I, I think next year is a foregone conclusion. St. Louis is going to have that interim tag removed and he'll be the head coach with no strings attached. How much long after that, I don't know. But it very much seems like in the short and long term, he's this team's guy. Um, we'll see how he adapts to changing expectations and different levels of pressure in Montreal. There's no pressure on him. Um, just like Ducharme last year in the playoffs, he's playing with house money. Um, the coach shouldn't be judged solely on what they do when there's no pressure. We have to see them compete and produce when it matters. Um, but for now, the players are having more fun in practice, in games. They're more effective at whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, so that leads us to, I guess... I wanted to sort of figure out what makes a good coach. My buddy Trevor on Twitter, at Gold's Personal, he tweeted at me after I asked for questions. He said, what makes a good coach? And I'm going to try to solve that in the, what is it, 47 minutes I've been on here. Um, I think after all this research I've done, after watching hockey for as many years as I've watched, a good coach is one that has an idea for how he wants his team to play. He rewards his players and their team, when they play that way, and knows when to cut bait when that plan isn't working. Um, he, a good coach understands their players, understands what style fits them best, and tries to create a, a, a plan around the way that his team is best capable of playing. And lastly, just adjustments are not a sign of defeat. They're a sign of flexibility. You know, we want coaches to go into the locker room down two goals and come up with a strategy that's going to help them come back. Um, I think that's that's truly a sign of a good coach. So we'll wrap things up here for today. Um, as always, I'm going to ask myself this question. Are the Canadians any closer today to winning a Stanley Cup than they were in November of 2021? The answer is still no, but they're certainly more fun. I'm, I'm legitimately looking forward to every Canadians game, including the one on Wednesday that starts at 10.30 at night. Um, they're, not, they're not any closer to winning a cup. The excitement, is still, the excitement is still valid. It is good to feel this way about this hockey team. And I'm excited to watch this team next year under this coach try to keep figuring it out. They don't have to figure it out in a year. 
but they have to keep making steps. And I think that this coach is an important first step. These games, as as much as they don't matter in the standings, they are important steps to getting this team back into being relevant. So I'll cut it there. Um, thanks for listening. I'll be back again next week. I don't know what I'm going to talk about next week. If you have questions, you can send them to me. DM me on Twitter. Um, or just at me on Twitter, at Maybe It's Ian, at Rabbit Haps for the blog, and the Montreal Bias, who were very kind to um, post this, or I think episode one, up on their feed. I greatly appreciate that. Zach is a is a dear friend of mine who um, I tweeted about it. He was the, the Montreal Bias was the first podcast I was ever on. I called in from my school's library. I, I rented a study room, so I had a quiet space to, to call in. Um, I remember listening to the episode walking around on campus either the next day or the day after. Um, he's been very supportive of me, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to call him a friend. So thank you, Zach, for sharing that on the, on the bias. And we will ha- I will have Zach on here. We'll, we'll, over the summer, we'll talk about some things with the Canadians and probably some things not about the Canadians. Um, he had a great episode of the Montreal Bias about Jackass. I'd like to talk about Jackass with him. Um, so at, maybe it's Ian for me, at Rabbit Habs for the, the, the other pods, at Montreal Bias. Uh, check them out. Check the description for links uh, links to things I mentioned during the show. All of the articles I talked about will be in there. Um, the Nakey Jakey video that I mentioned um, talking about Legos will be in there. Um, last thing I wanted to mention before I go, uh, I just wanted to give my condolences to Arpan Basu and, and his entire family on the, the loss of Arpan's father. Um, if you're a Habs fan and a, and a dialed-in one, you know that Arpan is uh, an integral part of the, the Canadians' media landscape. It's impossible to imagine consuming everything there is about this team without thinking of Arpin. Um, so, you know, our thoughts are with him and his family, and I hope they're able to find comfort in a really difficult time. Um, the music you're hearing now and you heard at the beginning of the show uh, is Inside by Fred Mug. Check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page and listen to the rest of his stuff there. Uh, take care. We'll talk next week. See you guys. Bye.